you're walking, you know, from the jail house to the courthouse in these underground tunnels, and all you hear, nobody's really talking, and all you hear is the chains that's just scraping against the floor, and you're pretty much either walking to your freedom or walking to your doom. I can sit here and say I was hopeful. I can sit here and say I had faith, but the, the core to my soul was fear. This is For Life, the podcast from Sony Pictures Television and ABC. Hi, I'm your host, Isaac Wright Jr. In America, it is estimated that there are thousands of wrongful convictions each year. Thousands more are overcharged and oversentenced. In 1991, I was one of the thousands of people wrongfully convicted of a crime. I was sentenced to life in prison and unfortunately had no hope for freedom and no one to fight for me other than myself. I taught myself the law and as a paralegal, I was able to help some of my fellow inmates get reduced sentences and released from wrongful convictions while seeking my own justice. After eventually getting my own conviction overturned, I became a lawyer and I've continued to be an advocate for those in need. My story also inspired the new fictional drama series, For Life on ABC. But there are so many others with stories like mine. In this six part series, we're hearing real life first person accounts of other wrongfully convicted men and women who against all odds prevailed, were exonerated and emerged from their unthinkable adversity with grace and purpose. These are stories of tenacity, faith, friendship, transformation, compassion, and family. Today's episode is about Richard Miles, a 19-year-old African-American man who in the early morning of May 16, 1994, was arrested by Dallas police while on his way home. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time. In this episode, we'll hear how Richard's faith, his family's faith, and a lucky break led to his eventual release. This is Richard's story. My name is Richard Ray Miles, Jr. I am 44 years old. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Growing up, I stayed in Oak Cliff with my mom, dad, and two younger brothers and an older sister. We were not low income, so I guess we were about middle. My dad was a disabled veteran and my mom was a, a school teacher. My name is Thelma Lloyd. Richard, when he was growing up, Richard was always uh, what we consider to be the clown of the family. He, he liked to joke and laugh. That's the kind of kid he was. He stayed in little mischief just trying to make you laugh. I would describe my family unit as forcefully close by virtue of my dad. <laughs> my dad was a, um, he was a very spiritually uh, girded man and he would make sure that we stayed close, you know, in church, uh, doing a lot of family activities. I was raised in the church. I commonly say we went to church about 10 days out of the week. Uh, that's like my whole life. It, it was a good growing up. He didn't take his studies serious, but 
his grades were good, and so we were looking forward to him going off to college. After I graduated, at the age of 18, I moved to a section of Dallas, which was called North Dallas. I was looking forward to going to TSTC in Waco for plastics engineering. I was working at McDonald's. I was really beginning to find my own way, so I had moved in with one of my friends that was the manager of McDonald's, and so I was kind of beginning that first start of freedom. On a day off from work in May of 1994, Richard had spent his day with his girlfriend. In the early hours of the morning, he got a ride home from a friend. Before he arrived, Richard stopped off at a payphone to let his roommate know that he was almost home. I called James from the phone, and the minute I started walking across the street, there was a police car that was sitting kind of like idle. I didn't pay any attention to it, walked by the police car, and the next thing I heard was the sound of a helicopter in the sky, and it shined its light on me. I didn't, you know, do anything off the wall or whatever. I, I just kept walking because I hadn't done anything, but in my mind, I was like, something is happening in the area. I need to hurry up and get to the house. And um, that was the last free thought that I had. The next thing I know, numerous police cars surrounding me from everywhere with commands, and I was handcuffed, my Miranda rights was read, and I was placed in the back of a police car. I think that that was the scariest thing, is to be arrested and not know why you're being arrested. When one of the officers said, when you get downtown, if you're telling the truth, then, you know, you'll be let go. And so at that point, I, I began to believe in the, the concept of justice you know, innocent until proven guilty. I'm taken to a room, a detective comes in the room, asks me where I had been that night. Those five people um, that I had been with earlier that day and all day that could verify my whereabouts. The detective got this information from me. He left out of the room, stayed gone for a couple of hours, and came back and he said, Richard, your story checked out, we called your Witnesses, everybody said that you was with them, but we have a guy that said they saw you kill one person and shoot another person, and you're going to be arraigned for murder and attempted murder. And so May 16th, I, I was actually arraigned for murder and attempted murder with a bond set for $350,000. I was fearful of being um, wrongfully convicted. I was fearful of the jail, I was fearful of what my mom and my parents would think when I had to call them to tell them that I was arrested for murder. Would they believe me? The first call that I made to my mom was at the, um, it was in the county jail, actually. It was a call of brokenness. I felt that I let them down um, just by being incarcerated. When Richard called me, I was at work. I worked for a daycare. Richard had informed me that he was in jail. And of course, you know, like I said, he was a jokester. So I didn't believe him. I didn't take him serious at all. I got kind of upset with him because I thought he was playing and I needed to get back to work. But 
In his voice, I could hear him break down, and, and I could hear him begin to cry. And he told me he had been arrested. I asked him what, and he said, for murder. And before I even really finished the conversation, my mom told me, she said, Richard, I know you're innocent, and we're going to walk this with you. To this day, I don't know um, how she knew or, or why she told me that right then, but that just really lasted and helped me throughout my journey. Richard's mother's unwavering faith in her son supported him when he needed it most. I was afraid for him. At that time, you hear all these stories about black boys getting incarcerated, getting killed, getting, you know, brutally beat up. I, I was afraid of the, the, the impact that it would take on his two little brothers and, and then to just know that he wasn't prepared for something like this. It just hurt me to my heart. I can sit here and say I was hopeful. I can sit here and say I had faith. But the the core to my soul was fear. And that dictated a lot of my thoughts, a lot of my actions. And so it, it made even my innocence brittle because I was so fearful of the system that actually had me arrested. We began to try to go to the police stations to see what we needed to do. And we didn't know anything about procedures. We had no money to bail him out. We had no money for lawyers or, or nothing. The court-appointed lawyer said, you know, if we could get him $5,000, he could get a detective to go out. And so we're trying to see if we can borrow money. That hurt worse than anything is is your child needing your help and you can't do anything you know it brings tears to my eyes and it's been so many years it was many nights we just cried because we didn't know we didn't know how to help our baby I stayed in the county jail a total of 17 months. I got locked up May 15, 1994, and went to jury trial August of 1995. The first part I remember was the part where we were selecting the jurors. And um, in my mind, it was like, these are the people that's going to say that I'm innocent. They're going to hear the evidence, and they're going to agree that I'm innocent. During the trial, um, the prosecutors first and foremost explained to the jurors that they had no motive. They could never find a connection, so therefore no motives. The crime that happened that night where some young men after a club went to a Texaco where everybody used to hang out. A young man runs up to the car, shoots into the top of the car. The shooter then uh, runs to the back of the Texaco where a white Cadillac comes to pick him up and he drives off. This was what the prosecutor explained. Some other key points that had to be brought out was the, the description of the shooter was 6'2", 6'4", 
real dark complected, and here I am, five, seven, five, eight, light skinned. It was ten witnesses. Nine of them said that I was not the shooter. All of them said that the shooter was darker than me. And the prosecutor's defense was I had been in the county jail 17 months, and so my skin complexion had lightened up dramatically, and that's why I wasn't as dark as I was before I went to jail. They had no other suspect. According to an Innocence Project study, mistaken identifications play a role in over 25% of America's wrongful conviction cases. Inaccurate eyewitness identification can corrupt the early stages of a criminal investigation. Although it can be deeply flawed or wholly inaccurate, eyewitness testimony is one of the most common and compelling types of evidence brought against a criminal defendant at trial. In Richard's case, it was all the prosecution had. Richard's faith in his family and community kept him strong throughout his incarceration. Faith is a theme that also can be found in Sony and ABC's fictional drama series, For Life. Here is executive producer Hank Steinberg speaking about how it plays an important role in the series as well. One of the big themes in, in the show is, is faith, and Aaron's character, I mean, primarily has faith in himself and maybe even an overriding faith in, in the world or, or something that could allow him to see the light at the end of the tunnel from years and years away, knowing that whatever he was going to do would take that long. If he somehow follows this plan, counting on improvising along the way, but that if he does this, he will get out. He will somehow prove his innocence. And underneath that is the faith that his family will still be there for him when he gets out and that gives everything this urgency and this energy that I think makes it exciting to watch and it makes it you really root for him. Be sure to watch Sony Pictures Television and ABC's drama series For Life, Tuesdays on ABC. Now, back to Richard's story. When I think about Richard, I think about the little boy that used to wear the big cowboy hats and the cowboy boots because he was trying to dress like his daddy and and the 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 joy and the energy that was around him and then to hear somebody say he walked up to a car and shot someone that that someone died someone was critically injured and I think about the two mothers you know, whose sons, one's life was taken and the other one was was critically injured. If I felt at a loss, I began to wonder, how did they feel? And I wanted to, to say something to them, but the detective at the time told me if I said something to the families, it would mean that I felt like Richard was guilty. But I wanted to talk to them, you know, mother to mother. The nine people that said I did not do the shooting, 
all nine were subpoenaed. All nine showed up, but no one called them in to testify. I feel like that was greatly um, a miscarriage of justice. The detective testified that I didn't look like the shooter, nor did I have the clothing on, and so he thought that I was the wrong person. I remember I stayed in the holdover, I think five or six hours. It took the jurors that long to deliberate. I remember the bailiff came back and he said, Richard, the jurors are ready. I walked back into the courtroom. Uh, my mom and dad, sisters and brothers were sitting on the um, bench behind me with uh, more family members. I remember the bereaved family members um, were on the other side. And just to see that physical split was kind of heart heartbreaking, you know. The moment I stand up, the jury reform, and she begins to read the verdict. And it was probably the longest but shortest sentences that I've ever heard. We, the members of the jury, uh, find the defendant Richard Ray Miles Jr. guilty. At that point, you know, I kind of like blacked out. And this was just the first charge of murder. And I remember I sat down and my lawyer, he began to nudge me and told me I need to stand up to respect the courts. And in the back of my mind, it's like, how do you respect an entity that obviously doesn't respect you? I yielded to that authority. And I stood back up and I accepted the verdict August 27, 1995, the, the system and the jurors, they failed me. When they came back and said he was guilty, I, I, a part of me died. All the, the evidence or the information that they had in the courtroom, none of it connected with my son. Even the Eyewitness, he didn't even describe my son. And the only way he identified him was he was sitting in the back of the police car when they took him back to the scene of the crime. I was given a total of 60 years, 40 years for the murder and 20 years for the attempted murder. I remember hearing my sister cry. Um, and the interesting thing was the difference in feelings and emotions that I heard without even turning around. Because the victim's families, you could hear a, a slight hand claps and thank gods. And, and I wanted to say again, I'm innocent, you know, as I said on the stand. As I was handcuffed and I was escorted back to the holdover, I turned to look at my mom who was sitting next to my dad. And she was just laying in his arms. My husband holding my hands, I know he was hurt because he felt like he let his family down that day. For him to cry in front of, you know, us, in front of the kids, I know he was hurting. Once I'm found guilty, now it's anger. It's my mom and dad, why couldn't they? 
uh, give the attorney more money to do a better job, uh, angry with the prosecutor because he knew I was innocent, you know, angry with the jury, you know, I was upset, I was hurt. They sent me to Cofield Unit, probably the biggest unit in Texas. It housed 5,000 men. The first thing that I noticed, honestly, was the showers were right up under the TV. One of the things about this unit was you don't put shower curtains up because that's impeding the vision of the officers. There was no privacy. And the fact that you could watch TV and look at a person in the shower was so dehumanizing to me that it automatically slapped me to tell me that I was not free. The Cofield unit has no heating and no air conditioning. It's all glass and brick. In the summertime, the cells are 110, 115, with people dying of heat strokes. And in the wintertime, the cells are 20. Rust and mildew, that's what you immediately smell and yearn as you walk in, or if you can just imagine body odors being contained in an environment and not um, fully cleaned. This was a unit that I did about 13 years on. And it was a unit that I grew up in. While the temperatures within Caulfield Prison have not been independently verified, the external temperatures, which have been recorded, correspond to Richard's account. When we would go to visit with him, we would go as a family. His brothers and sisters, we told them it would not be no them staying back because they were ashamed. My husband's health was bad, so we made trips to Tennessee Colony, what, two-hour drive, and it would take us four hours because we had to stop and, and, and let him rest. And to see my husband's health dwindle down to nothing, all of us suffered. When I got to Cofield Unit, I met a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Spencer. And Benjamin cut hair in the barber shop, um, and it was the first place that new arrivals went to. We started talking, and I told him that I was innocent, and I was from Dallas, and Ben is from Dallas. He's from West Dallas. And Ben pulled me to the side, and he said, man, if you're really innocent, man, I know this organization by the name of Centurion uh, Ministries, and they're in Princeton, New Jersey. They do work on non-DNA cases, and you need to write them. Whereas the Innocence Project focuses on exonerating the wrongfully convicted through DNA testing, Centurion Ministries take on wrongful conviction cases that don't involve DNA. The New Jersey-based nonprofit was founded by Jim McCloskey in 1983. So that night, I sat down and wrote him a very in-depth letter and I got one back within a week or so and the letter was stating due to the overwhelming responses of claims of actual innocence from around the world. It takes a minimum of 10 years before we're able to get on your case. 
Well, that just started a 10-year writing process between myself and Centurion, but in the interim, I wrote other colleges, I wrote newspaper stations, uh, TV stations and everything. Then urged me to start going to the law library because when your appeal is denied or if your appeal is denied, you have to file your next writ of habeas corpus. Keeping in mind, I'm 20 years old. I had never heard of a writ or a habeas corpus. Um, and so he took me to the law library and it was in that space in that time that I filed my writ of habeas corpus 1107 uh, to refute my uh, conviction of, of guilt on the 60 years. I did not have my transcript. My transcripts were way too expensive. They were $3,000. And so my writ of habeas corpus was denied because we did not provide extra record evidence to substantiate my claims of actual innocence. The 15 years that Richard served, the whole family served it with him. We had to go through the lost days the holidays without him, nieces being born without him, and that part of his life that he missed out on, we missed out on it. We didn't get to see him go to college and graduate and become the man that he wanted to become. My youngest sons, they, they looked up to Richard. We have to try to protect them so that they won't see any glory out of this and think, oh, it's cool for my brother to be in jail. The turning point in my case came in um, October of 2007. The male lady, she pushes this huge box into the cell, and I got out of my bunk, and I got to the box, and it's from Centurion Ministries, and it was my transcripts. It was four volumes of transcripts and it was my police records. Um, I had never had an opportunity to sit down and read my transcripts. Um, four years prior, my dad went to the Dallas Police Department and we purchased by way of a Freedom of Information Act the police records. So I started reading my transcripts and as I read them, I relived my jury trial and I'm writing on pen and paper thoughts and information that's coming to me because by now, I'm pretty legally inclined. Uh, I know some legal jargon and so forth. When I opened my police records, the first thing that hit me was when my dad went to the Dallas Police Department and purchased the records, they gave us 25 documents. But when Centurion Ministries went, they gave them 85 documents. The same Freedom of Information requests, but different amounts of documents. It was within the documents that Centurion retrieved that I read a memo of a phone call that was sent in or called in to homicide way before I went to jury trial. And it was of a young lady who her boyfriend had been bragging about killing one person and shooting another person a year prior in 1994, he showed her the gun, told her who he was with, and she called the police and she explained my case to this officer. The Dallas Police Department had all of this information way before I went to jury trial. 
and it was in the police records. And it had been in the police records all these years. And when I read this, I immediately knew that this was Brady violation because this was exculpatory evidence that was in the hands of the prosecutors or the police officers before trial, and it was never brought out. Established by the 1963 Supreme Court case Brady v. Maryland, the Brady Law states that the prosecution must disclose before trial any evidence that could weaken its case. The memo Richard describes was exculpatory evidence, evidence that points toward his innocence. The prosecution did not disclose this evidence to the defense before Richard's trial began, therefore violating the Brady rule. That was the turning point of my case, that one document. I was released 15 months after they took my case. And so January of 2008. The day that we buried my husband, Mr. McCloskey called and said, how about Richard coming home in October? I took it as a spiritual sign that God had been there all the time. And we didn't tell Richard that his dad had passed. I didn't write it in a letter. I wanted to go and tell him. It was like God took my husband, but he sent me my son back. After Richard was released from jail and the the judge allowed me to cut that band off of his wrist, it was like the baby that I gave birth to And you know, they put the little ID band on the baby. And after you get home for a little while, you cut the band off. It was like my baby was given back to me. I lost my dad in June of 2009. And so I was hurt um, when he died because uh, one of my dreams was to get out and go fishing you know, do some dad and son stuff that we really never um, got a chance to do. The last time I saw my dad was December of 2008. Um, You could see the cancer literally eat him up. When I first started doing time, he would come in. He was this big, burly type of guy, you know, with a smile on his face. By his last months, he was this small-framed gentleman, um, but still had the smile on his face. And that's what I remember about my dad. And he still believed that justice was going to prevail. I was released from the physical confines of prison. I was happy to be out. I was happy to move forward. I was happy to touch my mom and, and my sisters and my brothers but I was still incarcerated because I wasn't fully exonerated. Richard Miles was released from prison on parole, but while he was released physically from prison, he was still considered a convicted felon in the eyes of the state and the public at large. When Richard came home, I was, I was prepared for Richard to live with me forever. 
I didn't know that he only wanted to stay there at least six months and be on his own. One thing that I was not prepared for, when Richard came home, he might have been 36 years of age, but mentally he was 18 years old. He didn't know how to use the cell phone, the microwave. I remember he was outside cutting the yard, and this was on a Wednesday, and they do those emergency warning tests, and the siren went off, and I didn't hear anything, and I went to check on Richard, and he had left the lawnmower running in the yard, you know, and he's, he's up on the porch standing at attention. And he didn't know what that was. He, he, it took him back to something that happened in prison, and it scared him. I wasn't ready for him to come back home and be afraid of things like that. So I wasn't expecting a little boy to come home. When I got out, I'm now experiencing life as a person convicted of a felony. I couldn't just go and get an apartment anywhere. It was particular jobs that I knew because of the conviction. I wasn't fully exonerated yet, so only particular people would even talk to me. And so in 2012, once I was fully exonerated, the state of Texas has a compensation that we lobbied for, and we created Miles of Freedom. On February 15, 2012, two and a half years after he was released from prison, Richard Miles was found innocent and fully exonerated by the Court of Criminal Appeals, the highest state court in Texas. In 2013, Richard founded a nonprofit organization called Miles of Freedom. So Miles of Freedom's mission is to uh, provide services and assistance for individuals, families, and communities impacted by incarceration. Because my, my work comes from a dark place, it doesn't allow me to get too high-minded. And every time somebody says, you're doing a good job, it takes me back to where and how did the job start. And so it's always a place of humility. When he was exonerated and it was publicly known, the mothers of those young men who, who were victims, they know my son didn't do it. That, that's, that was my hardest cry, other than Richard being in jail, is having those ladies think that my son did that to their sons. But for them to know, hey, he really didn't do this, that was the greatest release that I could think of. And I just hate that his father wasn't here to share in it with him. But to see him come out of prison and walk the life that he's walking, it is an honor may sound strange, but it's an honor to be his mom. The idea of Miles of Freedom, it literally started within the prison system. I met Aubrey Jones in 2004, an older man who worked in the law library. And one of the things that we saw uh, in the prison system was how a person would get out and they would come right back to prison. And a lot of times they would come back to prison not because they've 
gotten a new case, but it was small stuff. It was not reporting their housing. It was showing up late for a meeting. And the biggest thing was there was no one out here to employ them. There was nowhere to stay. There was no resources out here. And so the people felt more security in prison. And that put me, myself and Mr. Jones on this path of what would it look like if we were to get out and to start an organization strictly geared to assist people returning home from prison and the families and the communities that's impacted by incarceration. I don't think that there is any type of therapeutic process that could help a person that's been uh, through what we've been through, which is the wrongful incarceration. But if you can put yourself in a position as a solution based upon your life experiences, then what you've been through becomes the problem, but what you're doing becomes the solution. Uh, and so for me, it's therapeutic. My son spent 15 years incarcerated for a crime he did not commit. 15 years of his life, I will not say was wasted behind bars because he came out with a fight in him. And he came out doing something that he strongly believes in now. And I'm very proud of that. Richard Miles' story is a story of faith. As a young man, Richard lost faith in a system that failed him. But through those 15 hard years of incarceration, Richard's faith prevailed. His lifelong faith in his family, his newfound faith in his capabilities, and the cautious yet consistent faith that the truth would eventually set him free. And of course, there's Richard's mother, Thelma, who never, not once, lost faith in her son. Richard Miles' experience is not singular. Exonerations are on the rise nationally and according to the National Registry of Exonerations, as of 2019, 49% of exonerees are African-American. For more information about Richard Miles' organization, Miles of Freedom, visit milesoffreedom.org. In the next chapter of For Life, the podcast, we'll meet a woman whose wrongful incarceration led her to discover the power of friendship and community, which would lead to her freedom and change the course of her life. I was able to help people with their outside court cases. Most of the time, it felt great to have success for other people, even though my own appeals were denied. I was able to separate the two because I could see very clearly what there was that I could do. I was just blocking out my own situation because it was hopeless at the time. For Life, the podcast is produced by Treefort, Executive producers are Lisa Ammerman and Kelly Gardner for Treefort, and Nicholas Austin and Nathan Staudinger for Sony Pictures Television. Our producer is Tana E. Seabrook, with additional production help from Jamie Tenenbaum, Tim Schauer, and June Rosen. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor, with production and editing by Jasper Leake and production assistance from Elijah Wells. 
If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to raise awareness and get the word out so more people can hear these powerful stories. The stories in this podcast are real. While the television series was inspired by my life, that story, including all characters, events, incidents, portrayed scenes, and dialogue, is fictitious. And be sure to watch Sony Pictures Television and ABC's drama series, For Life, Tuesdays on ABC. I'm Isaac Wright, Jr. For more information on Centurion Ministries, go to centurion.org.